they can go off and think about things and apply it. And part of the reason that they really like it is because we're really in control of the outcome when that happens, right? Nothing unexpected or demanding is likely to come out of the kind of contemplation where we get to decide how it applies and affects our own lives. And contemplation as an exercise in what's in it for me is just not what the Jesuits are trying to teach you. Instead, as you will be taught, they really mean it when they speak of Scripture as the living Word of God. It's not just fancy stained glass language. Scripture is a live thing, not a long ago mummy. And they also really believe that the Holy Spirit has something to say to you and to me through the text. And that each and every story in the Bible, and especially the stories of the New Testament, can embrace and enfold us in its reality if we will but let it and let it work on the eyes of our heart, as the song said this morning. Now look, I know that all sounds really wildly improbable if you've never done it. I wasn't sure that I could believe it the very first time that I heard about it. All of it sounds especially improbable to those of us who have been taught to or who just naturally read the Bible like it's an old newspaper. Most of us actually read the Bible that way. And so most of us don't expect anything to come of it except what would come from reading old newspaper stories. Oh, isn't that interesting? I wonder how they figured that. And that's why whenever something in the Bible can be proven to be an error or it doesn't match up with a modern understanding, there are great shouts of joy from some corners. See, we told you, you can't trust it. If it were really something special, if it were really something holy, if God were really a part of it, then everything in it would agree and it would all match up with what we know about science or about anything else. Now, the rest of us may not rejoice at the news, but we will lay that old newspaper aside, convinced that it has nothing to say that could bear on our lives, and we will never trouble ourselves with reading it. I have to say, though, my brothers and sisters, that that approach to Scripture is a dead end for your faith and for your ability to believe. But what if my Jesuit teachers were right? What if the text is still alive in a way that we don't quite understand? What if the Holy Spirit actually can and will reach out and touch us and teach us through that text? What if the story can itself reach out and embrace us? in its reality, what happens if all of that is true? Well, if the Jesuits were teaching you to contemplate that way, 
the first thing they would do is tell you to pay attention to what they call your spiritual senses. If you close your eyes and you listen to the story, what do you see? What do you smell? What do you taste? What do you feel? What do you hear? Where are you in the story? Who are you in the story? It might go something like this, especially the first time you try. You can see in your mind's eye, in the eyes of your heart, you can see a whole bunch of people walking down the road. In the very front are a bunch of guys that are acting a little bit like secret service agents. You know, they've got their arms locked together and they're looking this way and that. And they're really trying to control the crowd. And in the center of that group is some guy that must be Jesus, because there he is. He's in the middle. And everyone is dressed in dusty, slightly ragged, brown or beige robes with scruffy beards and hair kind of like they're extras on a movie set. And, you know, if you really think about it, you might feel the dust of the road between your toes and in your sandals, and you might taste the dust in the air and smell the droppings of the animals that carry goods back and forth through the gates of Jericho. You might hear the incessant buzz of flies all around you. Or then again, it might all be silent, and, and you could be like a drone and looking down on everything slightly from above and to the left. You might see some beggar hunched at the edge of the road with a cloak all pulled up around him, and, and you might see him suddenly jump up and start waving his arms. You might even hear him vaguely shouting something about Jesus. And then you might see a couple of those guardian Jesus followers go and drag him up and drag him out in front of Jesus. And then Jesus appears to say something to him. And the beggar is leaping around and all excited, and then he goes back and gets in the crowd. And if you managed all of that in your very first effort, your spiritual director would congratulate you on getting that far. And then you would be sent back to contemplate that same scripture again. Because, you see, what you've been able to imagine thus far uses the text kind of like a movie script. And while it is more real than an old newspaper, there's nothing in the action that you have just imagined that really involves you, is there? Just like reading the Bible as a really old newspaper, this sort of con contemplative encounter, as good as it is for the first time around, leaves you in control of the story. Now, I'm not going to walk you through all the steps this morning. We really don't have that much time but I can tell you that if you stick with it, you will find that each time you contemplate this little story, your involvement in it will change. What you see, 
what you notice and smell and taste and feel and hear will change. Your emotional engagement, your spiritual engagement with the story will change. And you will find that you gradually move closer and closer to the action. As though you're one of the crowd. And then as though you're a disciple. And finally, as Bartimaeus. And you may finally hear Jesus and see him look at you and hear the words, what do you want me to do for you? It's not impossible. It isn't some sort of hallucination or mind trick that you play on yourself. I've seen lots of people do it. I've seen people who have control issues do it. I've seen people who believe that they should put their imaginations away when they're six years old and never use them again because it's only for children. I've seen them do it. I've seen all sorts of people do it. And what's always interesting is how hard it is for them to answer the question that Jesus asks. What do you want me to do for you? You know, we're in our culture big believers in WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? Except for what it really means is what would Jesus do if he were here, but he's not, so I have to do it for him. And so we run around doing stuff for Jesus. And we never stop and ask ourselves, what do we need Jesus to do for us? So, or, you know, some of us are convinced that Jesus would never waste his time on us because we're not worthy to have him speak to us. He just has bigger things to worry about than the likes of us, especially since we have most things in our lives under control, right? And so we go off and we do lots of things for him. But we don't think about what we might need him to do for us. We have all sorts of barriers and reasons why we cannot or should not answer Jesus' question. But one of the glories of learning to contemplate scripture in the way that I've tried to describe to you is that it gets right under all of those barriers and it brings scripture alive and the power of God's grace alive in us. It's not an abstraction anymore. It becomes real. If you contemplate this story in the way I described and you find yourself in the skin of Bartimaeus, the first thing you're going to say in the story is, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. For what do you need mercy? Do you need the mercy of healing? The mercy of attention and love? The mercy of forgiveness of sins? or mercy for your hardness of heart and lack of faith and virtue? Until we know why we are asking for mercy, it is impossible for us to tell Jesus what we really need and want. To contemplate this story with any devotion means that we will encounter 
our own blindness and its causes. And it means that we will be faced with our own need for forgiveness and healing. We'll be faced with our own closed down and shut off places where pride deludes us into thinking we don't need Christ. It isn't always easy to do this. But I can promise you that if you do it, if you stick with it, whatever blinds you will be healed. Did you know that almost all, well, not almost all, but most of the miracles in the New Testament are miracles of healing and restoration and wholeness? Removing blindness, giving voice to the mute and hearing to the deaf, restoring motion to the lame and health to the dead and dying, driving out evil spirits that possess the mind and the heart. In all of those stories, Jesus heals and restores the one who is broken to fullness of life. And unlike in the story of Bartimaeus, Jesus often says in those healing stories, go, your sins are forgiven. It's one of the ways that we can know that each of the healing stories, Bartimaeus included, has its own spiritual corollary or way of thinking about it. There are those who are blind because of their, their hardness of heart and their arrogance. There are those who are mute because life has muted them in some way or because they have chosen not to speak to God and so are deaf to God's call. There are those who are lame, stuck in one place, either because of the actions of others or because of their own choices. There are those whose sins have deadened them to others and to God. And those who have so given themselves to that which is not God that it possesses their hearts and shuts out everything else. But here's the most important thing to remember. There is not one of them, not one of them that asks that Jesus does not hear. No one who asks is denied. Now, contemplating the story of Bartimaeus will give the Holy Spirit ample opportunity to show you yourself. And you know, one of the things that you'll notice in the story is Bartimaeus doesn't sort of try and get out of it with sort of generalizations, oh, Jesus, heal me. He's specific about what he needs because being specific matters. It takes humility to be specific. It means you have to let your pride suffer just a little bit. And humility is the first step in healing. Now, the church is supposed to be a place of healing. It's a place where we help one another, where we pray for one another, where we encourage one another, where we bring one another into the healing presence of Christ. We do not come here because we're perfect. We come here because we need Jesus and his healing mercy. Let us make good shepherd 
a place where it is always safe to come, to learn, to pray, and to ask Jesus for what we really need. Amen.